Hey, welcome to Peace Lab. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network, joined as always by Hannah Heinziger, Editor-in-Chief of the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website. How are you doing today, Hannah? Good. Good to be here with you, Jason. And I'm excited to be talking to our friend Isaac Villegas today. Isaac, thanks for joining us all the way out there in Chapel Hill. Glad to be here. And for folks who don't know North Carolina geography, a lot of times people say, well, if you're Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, they're like all rides right side by side. But it's not the case. We're kind of spread out. And so I'm more likely to see Isaac at a, a drone conference in New Jersey than I am just like to see him around town. So it, it's a treat to be hanging out with you. Thanks for taking time, Isaac. Yeah, that's, was that the last time I saw you? I think that might have been, wasn't I'm afraid it? so. Yeah, that's a sad state of affairs. It's like two, three years ago. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to see you here just in a couple of weeks in Orlando. A lot of the church is talking about this because it's the Future Church Summit is getting a lot of energy and a lot of buzz. And I know that's something that you've been a part of. And there's a lot written about that. You can go uh, to the Mennonite website and read a lot of good stuff about Future Church Summit and the convention website. Here on the Peace Lab podcast, we want to dig a little bit deeper about one aspect of not just the Future Church Summit, but more in general, the future of our church and what that means in terms of peacemaking. And uh, we really wanted to have you on here to get your perspective, because these conversations are happening in different spheres. You know, we have a, an episode of Peace Lab in the Archives here where some folks from the Hope from the Future Conference came out with a document kind of outlining what their hopes for the future of our church is as a peace church. And I think these conversations are happening everywhere. I'd just love to start off to hear from you, Isaac. You know, as you look to the future of Mennonite Church USA, where do you see us evolving as a peace church? And I guess that's a sort of two, you know, two-pronged question. Where do you think we'll go as opposed to where should we go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I've been just first to say that I've been really um, grateful to be working with the group of people that Glenn Guyton has assembled. Um, I'm really excited about convention and, and what it's going to, what the conversation is going to be like. Um, yeah, in terms of peace, one of the things that I hope might happen at the summits at, at Orlando is we might make more clear and uh, think creatively about what it means to be a peace church. So um, historically, it seems like as Mennonites, we have thought about peace primarily as a stance against war, um, which obviously is fundamental to who we are. But I think we've done that um, and, and neglected all the ways that peace has everything to do with in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our um, churches. Think a bit more about what we're committed to when we say peace. There's been a lot of really important work done, um, done in terms of sexual abuse that, you know, this is also what it means to be a peace church, that we care about how we treat one another, the boundaries between bodies. Yeah, so maybe to highlight, to include that in what it means to be peace and think more broadly, I care a lot about prisons, uh, about incarceration and how, uh, what it means to be peaceful involves the place of the prison industrial complex in our lives. So that'd be one example of all the ways we should be pressing out of what it means to be a peace church in ways beyond just just a stance against war. Isaac, there would be a lot of different ways we could go um, in what you just said there, but I wonder, you kind of ended with this prison industrial complex idea. And for folks who may just be kind of discovering some of this, um, talk a little bit more about that and, and the ways that's connected to kind of racism and historic movement that this grows out of, if you would. Yeah, right. Yeah, I first got interested in prison stuff, I guess, for two reasons. One is um, there's a couple at my church, uh, uh, an older couple, 
Joyce and Paul, and they are registered with the state of North Carolina to be, to be uh, sponsors at a local prison, religious sponsors. And so they bring people to church every Sunday, people who are currently incarcerated. They get to go to worship wherever they, they feel comfortable worshiping. So Joyce and Paul, I've been bringing them to our church for as long as I've been pastor. Um, and it's really shaped my vision of what it means or my experience of what it, mean, what it means to worship um, and what it means to be drawn into different lives of people in our community. Uh, the fact that every Sunday uh, prisoners are, are there with us. That's what first got me. Oh, and the other is a, a friend of mine um, used to be at our church, uh, Jennifer Graber. She, she wrote a book about kind of the, the Christian roots uh, involved in setting up prisons in the prison complex here in the United States, here in the colonies in the United States. And yeah, just talking with her and hearing her description of, of how this has all played out in our country as has gotten me involved in, in thinking about uh, prisons as, as an area of our lives that we usually don't think about because it's convenient to not worry about prisons. I can't remember when it was. Uh, there was, it's, the, it's called PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Maybe it was 2008 or something like that. But before this act of, uh, by Congress, the, um, the prison department never kept records of sexual violence within prisons. So that it's, it's skewed. And they also, when they started keeping track of sexual violence within prisons, they weren't included in the societal averages. Why? So they were considered uh, what happens in prison stays in prisons is, was kind of the effect. And I think that mentality has permeated our culture where we just don't think about what life is like in prison because we don't have to. And, and that seems like a problem for me. And I always think this is an interesting topic, too, because when you think about, or at least for me, when you think about prison ministry, you think about sort of Chuck Colson or Charles Colson type, you know, almost more evangelical. So what does a more Anabaptist Mennonite prison ministry look like? So when you're engaging with folks, what does that sort of look like from, from day to day and how do you approach it or, or the folks from Chapel Hill Mennonite? Yeah, I think what Chuck Colson did was, was really important, actually. This connection that he made evangelicals caring about prison especially at the time of, towards the end of his life, he dedicated most of his, his ministry, most of his energy to this. And I think that's been really important because in terms of the national trend, as the prison population has gotten more black and brown, the wider culture has stopped caring, stopped looking at who's in prison. So as that's going nationally as a trend, I mean, one example that makes this really clear is back in the day, uh, Babe Ruth hit his longest home run at Sing Sing Prison because the Yankees and others would hold exhibition games inside the prison because it was viewed as community service. And you think about maybe another thing to think about, one of my favorite albums of all time, Johnny Cash, doing Folsom Prison. It was this sense of like, yeah, this is what happens. You, you, if you're an artist, you give back to the community by, by offering your gifts inside prisons. Um, all of that made more sense when the prison population was primarily white. As the prison population has gotten more black and brown, none of that happens anymore except Chuck Colson is in there taking Christians to prison and saying, we care about, Jesus says to go visit prisoners, we go visit prisoners. So yeah, I, I really appreciate his ministry. And I think of a lot of what uh, we do is, is kind of following in those same footsteps. Maybe one difference is that for what Chuck Colson does really well is basically just invite people outside, inside, right? And just developing those important relationships. He doesn't have a lot of structural analysis in terms of how prisons have happened. You know, like, it's important to remember 
prisons are an invention. <laughs> you know, like it's not natural. It's not something that like uh, was was from the beginning of time. This is something that we as human beings have have created. And for whatever reason, societies have sustained and maintained and invested lots and lots of money into. So there's none of that kind of analysis in um, in Chuck Colson, where I think that that's what it means in terms of who we are as Mennonites. One of the one of our commitments in our uh, confession of faith is that we care about peace systemically. Uh, we care about peace uh, for everyone, not just for ourselves. It's not just about our personal relationship with God or, or even just with one another. It's about a, a system. Uh, same thing with our position against uh, racism. Not only do we care about the racism that gets in the way of relationships between two of us or in our congregations, we care about systems of racism. Um, and prison seems like one of those systems of racism that needs to be dealt with if we want to be an anti-racist uh, peace church. Seems appropriate to give a shout out to the movie 13th. I don't know if either of you have checked that out, but available on Netflix, which really, for people who are just getting started, really traces this history of the creation of prisons and the very um, racialized dynamics of that, the ways you can trace slavery kind of all the way now into the prison industrial complex. So I would encourage those listening to definitely check out that film, which is readily available. Um, but also, Isaac, you know, on Peace Lab, sometimes we're often trying to make connections to current events and the ways our church is engaging. Not that long ago, we've seen this current presidential administration now undo some legislation that made it tougher for private prisons, these prisons that are looking to turn a profit um, to be used for government contracts. And, and that's kind of been reversed now. Would you have a sense of kind of the impacts of, or would you want to talk a little bit about what that legislation and undoing that, that means? Yeah, those are all related to drug laws and mostly related to what the Justice Department has been empowered to do. So in a lot of ways, the laws have already been on the books, but Obama granted uh, the Justice Department and the attorneys, federal attorneys, to not seek maximum, maximum sentences for people with drug uh, convictions. Uh, whereas now, with the current, in the current Justice Department, um, they have been leaned on to, to seek more uh, harsher punishments. And yeah, I mean, like, like Hannah, like you're saying, what um, the, the documentary shows, 13th, is that what we call it, 13th? About the 13th Amendment. Um, and then Michelle Alexander and Jim Crow, which is a uh, new Jim Crow, which is based on, is that drug laws have, have from the beginning been racialized. So from, you know, from Richard Nixon to Bill Clinton, uh, there's a sense of, making drugs that uh, black and brown people use pun more punishable than drugs that uh, white people use. So the classic example is maximum punishment for crack cocaine possession, minimum punishments for cocaine possession. I think all that's really important and, and shows kind of the, the, the racism that has been involved in, in the writing of legislation. I think what's also important to, to talk about is, is that the, the people imprisoned for drug offenses is actually a small percentage. So even if you fix the drugs laws, there's a bigger problem happening. Even if you make the drug laws more, should I say more just or less unjust? <laughs> if, you make the, if you make the drug laws less unjust, you still have a, it's only a, a fraction of the population. What's really interesting to look at is, is at the same time, that deregulation is happening for what would be considered white collar crime. More uh, people are being put in prison for what are traditionally like maybe black and brown offenses. So I think what's important to, to realize is that there has been an emphasis in terms of policing 
about what counts as a hurtful crime for society. That, that if you uh, embezzle tons of money, if you uh, steal money uh, because you're a financial institution, if you do any kind of fraud, Medicaid fraud, or whatever it might be, things that like affect people's lives, you know, and that lead to some people dying, those crimes have not been uh, punished as severely as other forms of crime, which has led to more black and brown people being in prison than white people. So it's a matter of policing as well, just, and, and this, uh, what counts as what we think as crime that hurts our neighborhoods. And this issue, like so many others, it gets, it's entangled with so many other things you're right, and there's racism embedded, embedded here, and there's profiteering embedded here, and there's all these things. Yeah. That kind of brings me to a larger question that we, I think we have to think about as a church as well, but, and I'm curious how you handle this personally or how you handle it at Chapel Hill. So if you, if you get, start to get really involved in the prison stuff, it can, it can take everything. I know you're also you know, passionate about the issues in Israel-Palestine. You spent some time over there, um, and that, that affected you from what I've seen and what I've heard. How do you balance these things? And also, the administration we have now and all the news that comes out on a daily basis, how do you decide, I, I'm going to put my energy here, and then uh, I'm going to not ignore, but maybe keep these things at arm's length? I think that's a, a conversation a lot of people are having is, how, how do I sort of triage all, all the bad stuff that seems to be going on out there? Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. I don't think I have an answer. Maybe I could just say, like, make a couple of footnotes <laughs> on what you just said. I think one thing that's important to talk about is, is sometimes the way we think about these issues as separate is actually dishonest to the way things work out on the ground. So, for example, the police department here in Durham, the police chief has, has sent law enforcement agents to the state of Israel to be trained. The state of Israel a firm, a security firm in the state of Israel has the Obama signed a contract with them to uh, build a surveillance apparatus along the border with Mexico, since I care about. It's important to realize that the, these issues are all related, that, um, you know, injustice in one part of the world is actually directly related to injustices here. And the way with global financial markets, like, I mean, the people with all the money in the world deal with other people with all the money in the world. <laughs> and like, you know, that's like the top 1%. They're all buddies. And they have relationships and they manufacture a world uh, that we're all living in. And, and it's all related. The firms that are building more detention centers for people with un uh, undocumented people that are like, you know, in this way station before being deported are the same people that are writing legislation, passing them on to Congress to, to enact stricter immigration laws. So it does feel, so all that to say, yes, it's overwhelming because all these things are happening and it's hard to figure out where to go. And on the flip side of that, since it's all interconnected, if you face down a, an oppression that seems isolated in one context, you'll discover that that oppression is linked to all the others, that you're still fighting the same, you're still engaged in the same struggle of peace with this, this larger uh, unjust apparatus, even if it's only this one place. So I think of like Joyce and Paul who bring people to church, you know, every Sunday, and then they take them out during the week for like um, just other sorts of activities. I mean, that seems like a very small thing um, in terms of time commitment, uh, in terms of how it affects the world. But just to realize that these, the people in prison are going to need all the resources they can get all the relationships they can get in order to make it afterwards. And the fewer people in prison means that you can't make as much money off of them. 
And at the end of the day, what all of these corporations care about is making more money off of people. I mean, this is a, it's a, an insidious form of, of profiteering, like you were saying, Jason, and, and slavery, like you were saying, Hannah. So all that, yeah, so it feels like, yes, it's huge. And that means, and it's, there's a system that's trying to control everyone and oppress everyone. And that, also, that means that at every point along the way in society, you can find ways to resist. Yeah, and I think you're getting into this, Isaac. You're starting to talk a little bit about where you see places of hope or, or what gives you, I wonder if you talk a little bit about what gives you energy to kind of continue in this work of addressing, I don't know, what do we call it, a monster? Like the military-industrial complex, the global capitalism, it's all, yeah, connected. Yeah, yeah, I guess maybe uh, Paul would call them, the, the Apostle Paul would call them the powers and principalities that, of this present darkness or something mm, like that's that. That's right, uh, yeah. Although I don't like the darkness part. It feels like that language gets a little racialized. I always worry. I don't, know, I don't know what to do with it. Anyhow, yeah, I find myself sustained in this work. A couple things come to my mind. One is there are moments when I'm worshiping at church and we're singing a song and I just feel just held by God. Um, it just feels totally comforting. One of my favorite songs that, and I feel this every time we sing it, is uh, Joyful is the Dark. It's just, it's a, a Brian Wren song in our hymnal. Every time we sing it, I just, I just, I just feel God's presence and it feels, um, yeah, reinvigorating. Um, there's also this Taze song that we sing, but I can't remember what it's called, but those two <laughs> get me every time. So that sense of like just church, uh, um, this worship experience sustaining me. Um, also, I teach Sunday school for seven and eight-year-olds and Man, they're just, they're just so interesting, creative, brilliant. Uh, they're, the way they talk about God, yeah, I just find enriching for my, for my life, too. And a kind of grounding in this sense of like, I want, I want this God that I believe in to make sense to them. Just, just this as a side note, a few months ago, they, they, um, there's all this uh, Islam. They were talking about this. So what we decided to do, the kids in my Sunday school, and so what we decided to do is um, I gave them some envelopes and cards and markers and crayons. And they wrote, they wrote notes to uh, our Muslim neighbors. So, you know, we welcome everyone here. What is this? I can't even remember the, whatever it is. Um, we also wanted to make notes that say, hey, you know, you're our neighbor. Like you, you know, you are our neighbor. And so, yeah, I just, I let them write whatever they were, you know, I didn't tell them what to write. It was after looking at them, when they were done, it just so many of them were like love notes. <laughs> They're like love notes to neighbors, you know, like all these hearts, one, one had this heart and inside it said, we love you. It was just so touching. So yeah, so stuff like that, you know, I just find like, oh yeah, this is, this is amazing to me. This, this sense of, of God's love that these kids have. Um, and not just a love like for me, like um, Jesus loves me, this I know. But like Jesus loves my neighbor too. And I love my neighbor. So that sustains me as well. And I would say, maybe the third thing, I guess I'm a pastor, a preacher, so I, so I should think in threes. Uh, the third thing I would say is I actually find so much energy going to protests. There's a solidarity there in the streets. There's kind of a liturgy, a call and response liturgy um, of repeating words. I develop a sense of community. You see the same sorts of people at protests, develop relationships with them. Uh, this past week, no, two weekends ago, I went to a uh, counter protest um, act for America was sponsoring all these anti-Islam 
anti-Muslim protests across the country. And one of the places they chose was Raleigh, North Carolina. So people from church and people in our community went over there. Uh, the event, the counter protest was sponsored by Muslims for social justice. And it was just amazing being a part of this group, uh, you know, Christian Jews, uh, Muslims, people of no faith, uh, all there and, and talking about how we want a world that is for all of us. And it was just, it was really enlivening. I thought, yeah, this is, this is what gives me hope to be out here. And even though like across the street, there were these white supremacists with like military garb. Yeah, crazy uh, white nationalist militias out there. Just very disturbing. I was standing next to three little girls playing like recorders, Disney princess recorders. They have like a uh, different figure. And they're just like having a great time. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the world I want. That's good. A trinity of hopeful things. And yeah. I would say, I love taking my, I love taking my four-year-old daughter to protest because Number one, I want her to see that, uh, see what's happening, see people organizing, but also just her observations about what that means and what's happening are fantastic. Yeah. And the other side too, I'll tell you, I hear this, this is like the consistent thing I hear from older peacemakers, folks who've done it for years and years. And I'll say, well, how, how do you keep it going in the face of et cetera? And they say, spend time with little kids. Mm. Your grandkids can be the kids at church or whatever, spend time with little kids. So I, I think we, we might be onto something there. Yeah. You know, I, well, that idea of neighbors brings me to a, one thing that I hear a lot from people in Mennonite Church USA is I'm almost torn in a way. They say, you know, we want to we want to resist hashtag resist. We want to really resist the evil things that we see going on in whatever sphere. But also this this nagging problem that if I can't talk to my neighbor or if my neighbor's looking at the same news that I am and interprets it a totally different way. If we're so fractured on these very basic levels where are we headed, you know, as a country and, and even in our church in a way, you, you could see those same fault lines. I don't know, is, is that a two-track thing or do you work on those together? How do we resist these powers and principalities uh, at the same time being a loving neighbor to people that we might not agree with? We might say, you know, we actually don't have a whole lot in common when it comes to politics or even theology, but, but we need to find, find something higher there. I don't know, do you have, have you put much thought or, or tried to see what that looks like in, in play as? Yeah, no, that's a good question. When I think about my Muslim neighbors and my neighborhood here, what they, what we need are like safe spaces primarily. And it is unsafe to talk to a racist in your community. Like the best thing is actually to, to have an, a white ally tell them to leave or something. So yeah, so I... I I do think it's important to talking to neighbors to create a community. And I would hope that white allies would take that on as a burden to bear um, in order to create safe spaces for uh, people who don't feel safe. Yesterday, a 17-year-old girl was killed in Virginia as she was leaving the mosque. You know, like she's walking out of a mosque. Like it's, and this is a common fear. This is at this anti-Islamophobia protest I went to. Afterwards, we're all gathered there, and uh, my friend Fatima, she's just like, hey, look, you know, some of us are wearing hijabs. If you could, if people who are not wearing hijabs, white people, um, if you could just like walk us to our car, that would be, that would make us feel so much better. So, yes, talking to neighbors is important for people that are not part of the dominant culture and not part of the dominant religion. It's also important to say that like some neighbors just need to be, uh, they, we need a wall, uh, 
um, a shield of white people to, to like protect, you know, uh, to keep them away. Um, That's good to hear. I mean, and, but the, the key ingredient there to me, it seems like you have to have some skin in the game in this. And, and so you have to have those relationships built or you have to be, to be in proximity to be able to do that, to take those walks and do those things. And so it can't be a matter of just sort of intellectual assent to I listen to this, this news or I get information from here. But my life is pretty much goes on the way it was and, and everything's pretty rosy. We, we have to have some intentionality about where we live and how we exist and who we interact with if we want to have a chance to do, to do these things that can build real community and offer safe spaces. That seems to be the, the biggest challenge just between busyness and fear and, and everything else sort of thrusting ourselves beyond where we normally trod. I think that's exactly right. The importance of forming, forming relationships. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exact. I mean, I guess maybe one way to kind of riff up what you're saying is um, developing like cultures of solidarity or, or, or a sense of, of peoplehood that crosses uh, racial religious lines. And so that you can't help but care. So that's, you know, as, as Paul says, you know, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is joyful, we're all joyful. And, and to, to feel that, I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, and I, I mean, I would hope churches can be contribute to that, but, you know, sometimes I wonder if, if we are, do a good job of uh, enabling these relationships across these divisions. It does feel to me, this is, it gets into this rhetoric that so often seems to be popular right now in the Christian church and the Mennonite church about um, unity almost as like the primary goal and often framed as unity in Christ, which I think no one would disagree that we want to strive for, but sometimes then interpreted on a church level as kind of keeping the peace as in not fighting or not being direct with each other um, and also not addressing all of the things that are actually um, <laughs> all of the systemic things that are actually undermining our peace, but just in some ways kind of not talking about them for the sake of feeling, feeling peaceful mm-hmm. um, or feeling unified in some way. And I do think you're right that there is a whiteness trap in some ways, this idea that we can manage everything like that and that um, we don't have to have those conversations. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now is that what's at stake for the church is the integrity of our whole community, our whole faith community. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can't find ways, especially as white people, to name what's happening with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, as you think about the future church summit, is this a space where some of that's going to be able to come out? Yeah, I mean, this is what, the, what got the prophet Jeremiah in trouble, right? Like the other prophets were saying, hey, you know, we've got peace. Things are just fine. We're going to keep on going. Our, our society is, is great. And then Jeremiah comes around and says, you know, don't be saying there's peace when there is no peace. And that is a threat to people whose lives, the people in power, whose power depends on people remaining quiet, staying the quiet in the land, let's say, or something like that. So yeah, so I know I do think it's important, like obviously we want communities of peace where we can live together and find some sense of unity. But in order to get there, like we need to name what divides us, right? So we can deal with it. Psychoanalysis Therapy 101 says, once you repress something, it doesn't go away. (laughs) You know, it, it comes back to bite you. And I feel like in so many ways in the church and in society, we deal with problems by repressing them to think that they're not really there. So this uh, unsking, uh, yeah, the this, this sense of unmasking, being honest about what we are and who we are and, and the direction we're going seems really important.
uh, yeah, about the future trip summit, one of the things that we tried to do was, so, you know, all delegates are, are participants, but then we tried to look out and see like who's underrepresented in these conversations in the past in conventions and delegate assemblies. And so we've tried to enable underrepresented people to be more represented. You know, that's, that's something we're striving to do. Hopefully uh, it'll make a difference. You know, in the past I've been to Mennonite meetings where like the goal is basically let's make sure that there's at least one person of color at the table of white people. <laughs> and then that's viewed as like a step in the right direction, which yes, I mean, that's good. But as, as soon as it's two people, you, there's some sense of shifting the conversation and not feeling like you're all alone just that second person makes a whole lot of difference. So hopefully at convention, at the Future Church Summit, we will enable table group discussions to happen that, are, that allow people who haven't spoken in the past to feel like they're not alone, that, that, that this is their space too. That's my hope at least. Isaac, we really appreciate you doing this. We look forward to seeing you in Orlando and these conversations that we're having in Orlando, we know that they're gonna go on and the, the work that you're doing at Chapel Hill and, and like in other places, that's gonna continue. So. We'll have more conversations in the future. We'd love to have you back on Peace Lab to continue this discussion. But thanks for your time and your insights today. Thank you all. Thanks, Isaac. Bye. Well, that was a great conversation, Hannah. Uh, talking to Isaac, I hope some of the issues that he raised and some of the themes, hopefully they'll be explored and touched upon a little bit in the future church summit, which I'm excited to get to Orlando. I got my bag packed. I'm ready for some sunny weather. But more importantly, I'm ready for a great convention. The Mennonite's going to be down there covering it, I assume, where all can we find the Mennonite in Orlando at convention next week? Yeah, we're getting really excited. We're actually bringing four interns with us and a staff member from Bluffton University who's going to be working with those interns. So we're going to have more people there than usual helping to cover this thing, and we're really excited. We're going to be producing daily T-mails, our e-newsletter that goes out. So if people want to sign up, that's a free resource. Every day we'll be kind of releasing the latest news. We're also helping with a couple seminars there. And just to give a shout out to another podcast that we've just put out at the Mennonite too, really pointed towards Orlando, Melinda Berry from Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary hosted a series of three conversations really trying to help prepare people who are coming to the Future Church Summit to think about what's going to happen there, some questions they should be thinking through. So we're really, really excited and I'm going to get to participate in that Future Church Summit too. So I'm doing my own kind of prayerful preparation for that as well. I listened to that podcast from Melinda and Glenn. Uh, that was very instructional, even for me. And I've been you know, pretty involved in the process, not Future Church Summit, but, but keeping up with, this, with things developing. So, no, I highly recommend that for folks. Uh, and if you have a chance, come out. So uh, the Peace and Justice Support Network, we're going to be uh, the part of the Mennonite Mission Network uh, exhibit space. So come see us there. You know what we did this year? We redesigned our Pray for Peace pins. If you remember those square pins, a lot of people had them probably 10 years ago. But yeah, you know, all over their lanyards, right? Yeah, well, they've, they've been through the wash. They've been dropped. They've been here and there. And so uh, we found that a lot of people wanted to bring these back out. And so we put a, a nice redesign on them. So, so come by and, and check us out. Talk to us about PJSN. And also come see us at some seminars. We're, we're involved in four great seminars, one about returning vets, uh, one about peace circles, which is this great way that your church can start to work towards active peacemaking. Uh, we're going to be involved in a pretty unique seminar um, with Stanley Green and Cindy Cumberbatch uh, about racism in the church and Jesus wasn't white and exploring the issues there. I'm excited about that. And then also we're taking part of one called Making the Connections, Endless War There, Escalating Violence Here. And we've got a great speaker, Ajamu Baraka. He was the Green Party candidate for vice president. He's going to be talking to us about 
why the violence that we see overseas is intimately connected to our violence at home, which is a point that Isaac just brought up. So again, I think some of the themes that we just heard are, are going to be elucidated in Orlando. And so we're excited to be down there. Very nice. Yeah, we've got a couple seminars too, doing one with some folks from other Mennonite publications talking about kind of the future and past history as well of Mennonite publications. And then also, uh, I'm joining forces with a couple other folks on a panel to talk about peacemaking online and how we work at nonviolent communication on social media. So if that ever feels like a struggle to people right now, I'd invite them to come out. There are a lot of wise people on that panel. I'm going to stop by that one myself, I think. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. Safe travels. Come see us in Orlando. Listen to the podcast to get ready. And uh, we'll, we'll be back at you next time with another episode of Peace Lab. Peace Lab.